0: Welcome to Digital AF. In this week's episode, we dive deep into what it really takes to be a high-level marketing manager, from dealing with the gravity of multi-million dollar sales targets, to resurrecting a brand, managing key stakeholders, a small plane, and even a natural disaster. We draw on April's lived experience running a big brand. This is a story you do not want to miss. Buckle up, people. You're in for a ride. Digital AF the digital marketing podcast that features real conversations from those who live and breathe the digital agency life. April 4 Digital Agency shares their tips, tricks, and exposes the truth about what works and what doesn't. Welcome to Digital AF. Let's get into it. Welcome to Digital AF. I'm your host, Brendan Ford, and joining me is my better half business partner and true brains behind the operation, April Forbes.
1: Hello. Thanks for having me in my own podcast studio.
0: You're welcome. My pleasure. So Forbesy, how's it feel being on the outside of the table? It's
1: good. Yeah. I don't have to write any notes. Great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so this week we're talking about what it's like to be a high level marketing manager. Yep. And I thought one of the best ways to share that with the listeners is to maybe go through your past experience, in yep. particular, maybe your last big consulting gig before you started the agency. Yep. So do you want to tell me, first of all, what was the company or maybe if we don't talk about companies, what was the type of business that, or the type of the industry you're in?
1: So technically I was selling manufactured homes in a manufactured home park.
0: Which sounds uh. so sexy.
1: <laughs> Otherwise known or marketed as villages or like villages perfect for over fifties living.
0: Why well, aren't they over-50s villages?
1: Well, that's how they're marketed, but technically you can't discriminate on age. So ours was perfect for over-50s, right. not over-50s But villages. when
0: you started, was it over-50s village? Yeah. And then you had to change it to be politically correct?
1: Well, we had to change it because you can't discriminate. And technically the council approval was on paper for an over-50s village, right. but we can't discriminate for age. So it's perfect for over-50s.
0: Yeah. So there's a property development. How many homes?
1: I think two hundred and seventy. Yeah, like two
0: seventy, two eighty, something like yeah, that. Yeah,
1: something like that.
0: And so, but you can only you can't borrow on them, right? You got to pay cash.
1: Yeah, so full cash. There's no option to borrow because the banks will not lend on it because technically you're you own the house, the physical house, but you do not own the land. Right. You lease. The, technically, you lease the land.
0: Right. So you're convincing boomers.
1: People over people in their fifties and over. Yep. yep.
0: To buy something where they don't own the land, but they're gonna spend what, half a million bucks on a house?
1: Yeah, anywhere from, you know, 320 to, you know, in the six hundreds. Right. On a house. That That's
0: legally relocatable but practically immovable.
1: Yeah. I mean, we've heard of home park owners who have lifted houses up to prove that they can be moved. Right. Um But we're talking so
0: Slab on ground, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Specific it d- it depends. Yeah.
0: And so this development was in a regional Queensland location.
1: Yep. Yeah. Definitely mm. so, consider it regional.
0: Like, obviously I know a little bit about the story, but like if we start at the beginning, you got involved as a consultant for was at the CRM or something originally?
1: Yeah. So originally I was engaged to help with their lead generation and customer relationship management software. Yeah. Um, mm. And then ended up taking on slowly more and more projects and ended up being their sales. And I kind of, I wasn't, we had a sales manager. I was kind of the marketing manager, but I was heavily responsible or I was responsible to the board for the, you know, with my general manager for the performance of our sales team.
0: Yeah. So you had KP, sales KPIs that you yeah, had Yes, so I had
1: KPIs, yeah. which I had to report to the board and to shareholders.
0: So a little bit of scope creep from going in originally to put a CRM in place and then ending up running the thing. Yep. How long was the, the contract for? Or how long was the gig for? How long did you work there for? Um,
1: Two to three years, I'd say. Yeah, okay. Yeah.
0: And so what does a typical day look like when you are-
1: Depends if I was going to site or not. So we went to site or you know, me and my general manager would go to site two out of the five days a week. The other two days we had an office where we are here on the coast. So um, the other couple of days, sorry. Um, and we'd work from that office or we'd work remotely mainly because my job was dealing with suppliers and dealing with the sales team, you know, for transactions and reporting, et cetera. So,
0: the site was what, four hours away?
1: No, so a bit like two and a half.
0: Two and a half hours drive?
1: Yeah, two and a half hours drive. So we'd drive up there and back two days a week. Right. And then we'd fly sometimes.
0: Right. So just clarity's sake, when you say you'd fly, yeah, had your know. own plane?
1: We had a plane, yeah. Right. We okay. had access to one of our shareholders.
0: So how long was the flight?
1: I don't know, thirty minutes, twenty minutes.
0: have oh, good! <laughs> <say>. Four <laughs> hours in a car, twenty minutes in a plane.
1: Yeah, it did. It was more efficient in timing, which meant I could spend an additional, say, four hours on site with my team rather than travelling, which was very useful for both my general manager and I because we were both dealing with different things, and you'd kind of get there and you'd be on your feet pretty much the whole time because you had sales meetings and then you were looking at display homes and then you were reviewing stages and you were looking at stages and and all that type of stuff. So that those flights were added just a lot of efficiency to our time.
0: Yeah. So when you arrived with this company, when you started the gig, what was the state of play?
1: Uh, Oh, so they've just come out of, uh, so, you know, we'd all just come out of GFC um, and the Queensland floods. So I am sharing my age a little bit here. Like they were a couple of years out of those things, but we're still dealing with the ramifications of that, um, like we all did in business. Because it was in
0: an area that was heavily affected by the floods.
1: Yeah, very heavily affected. And still to this day is impacted by floods.
0: So what was the market perception of the the brand when you were there or the development?
1: Well, it had kind of stalled. So the building had, you know, like I would have people that would come to my open days and they're like, I didn't even realise you had houses built here. So because- they had kind of launched in and around that GFC time or potentially beforehand, I, I can't quite remember. But yeah, sales just kind of plummeted from there. And I don't know why and I don't know who the previous people were that would, you know, like who the previous marketing managers and stuff. It wasn't an easy product to sell.
0: Yeah, because you couldn't borrow on it. And it was an original real thought was underwater.
1: Yeah, and also circumstantially, I think it like there's so many moving parts to... Product that you're selling, so I think one of the biggest things we did was kind of brought it all together, and it felt like a process and a system rather than it being, you know, the sales team over here, the builders over there, the you know, the admin team somewhere else completely. You know. So if,
0: if we think of the priorities when you first started, yeah, user or customer experience or customer journey was a big, big part of that.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. So um, I was from, you know, I'm my background's real estate and commercial real estate as well as resi real estate, and I walked into an organization that were um, receiving leads. So lead flow was never quite the issue because of the type of product we were selling. It was a, it was a yes, you know, manufactured home parks or over fifties villages are everywhere. However, we had a really unique point of difference. Yeah. So that was never really the issue, which shocked me after coming out of real estate because, you know, they'd get say 40 inquiries in a month or something. I came out of real estate where, you know, you, you might get Two inquiries a week on a property. Yeah,
0: this very, was at a time when the market was depressed as well. Yeah,
1: very different to what we we're what we are experiencing now. So you know, to have salespeople sit there going, you know, the leads aren't worth following up, I was quite shocked about. Uh, so yeah, so we implemented a CRM system which allowed some automation to happen. Yeah. And, uh, what some, system did you use? We used uh, Infusionsoft at the time was my background. That, I, it's called yeah, Keep, Keep now, yeah, okay. yeah. yeah, which is kind of one of the first that had like the automate, you know, like it was, you know, if you think of the click funnel people um, that we deal that with, people. it was, you know, it segmented people and it allowed us to so send if we them pull on different out, customer journeys, et cetera.
0: If we pull out all those cliche sort of markety speak automation and, you know, funnel and all that sort of stuff, the reality was is you took a sales process which was a practical physical process. And then you recreated that using a CRM in an automated fashion. So effectively, you, autom- you automated through a CRM a practical process. Yes. For sales management, lead generation, lead nurture.
1: Yeah, I mean, over time it turned into sales management. Then over time it turned into um, financial reporting as well. But yeah. initially, it was put in place so they could track the leads that were coming in, so we could, you know, do email marketing to them and invite them to events, all that type of stuff. And over time, it evolved how we used it and how we relied on it. So I'm a big believer in if you're investing in an asset, you know, how else can it be used across the business? So, you know, if I'm asked for, I was asked for data for valuations, you know, I was able to pull all the sales prices and the land sizes so they could pull valuations. Yeah. So you Um, had
0: all that data in there.
1: Yeah. Over time we had all of that data entered. So, you know, my reporting became automated in the end.
0: So when you first started, You put a serum in place, you automate the lead capturing. So, when, hang on, you were saying you had heaps of leads when you first came in. Yep. Where were they going?
1: Oh, into probably some random spreadsheet.
0: Right. That was
1: printed or hand, you know, printed off and then written again and whatnot. But it wasn't. Systemized, I suppose. Yeah. And there was no way for us to know, you know, if someone was away, had they been followed up or, or anything like that. And it wasn't just the email marketing side of things. You know, I'm a big believer in physically sending something to someone as well. So, you know, we were sending, it allowed us to send brochures out to people.
0: So for every inquiry that came in on a property, yep. you sent. A yes, brochure out in the mail. physical pack,
1: yep. And yep. also the ability to access that online as well, so.
0: And, like, this is some of the mechanical stuff you were doing, but ultimately if we it up a year and just talk about the brand side of things, yep. what was the market perception of the development at the time, having just come into GFC and the floods?
1: Uh, that it potentially had.
0: Wasn't doing so well.
1: Yeah, so they, people didn't even know that they, they had started building. They right. didn't know what had happened to the brand. There was
0: already, what, how many homes, like 50 homes or something?
1: There was one stage that was already near completion when I started, so maybe 20 homes.
0: Yeah, so whilst in the background you've got all this mechanical marketing stuff going on, what, and procedures and processes and systems, what were you we doing from a brand
1: perspective? So we invested quite heavily into digital. Yeah. We went all into digital. Essentially, they had been spending money on TV and radio and um, a lot traditional. of traditional, yeah, yeah, traditional media, which has its place. You know, we had we had directional billboards, which you know we still had till the end, and I still think we have. They still have a couple now, a couple of publications which are really relevant for that industry, which you know you wouldn't not advertise in. Yeah. However, we based on the inquiry that was coming in and the type of people that we were marketing to we invested into digital quite significantly. And when
0: you say digital, what do you mean? Like as in Google ads, Facey ads?
1: So Facebook ads. Yeah. um, Instagram wasn't a thing then. uh, And Google ads, yeah. Yeah.
0: And content?
1: Yeah. So uh, initially we started with just advertising. But I introduced content because I was sick of people coming to the open day telling me that they didn't know that there were houses built and and whatnot. So – What I used content for was to tell the story of the brand and what was happening, introducing new residents. You know, this dog lives with, you know, these people at this house and it's playing in the dog park and, you know, all that type of stuff, like really nice, touchy-feely, genuine content.
0: Yeah, really authentic to what the brand was.
1: Yeah, super authentic to show that, you know, it was a real living thing. And then we used advertising for more direct sales to generate inquiry.
0: So how many leads a month were you getting in?
1: Depends on the time of year. I'd go from 350 to 700.
0: Inquiries a yep. month. Yeah. Right. And sales team, are how many people?
1: Uh, three with three receptionists.
0: Three salespeople. Yep. Between 350 and 700 leads a month and three receptionists. Yep. And 280 odd homes over how long was that? Three, four years, five years? How I was long?
1: there for maybe three. I left just as the last stage was right. c- going to sale. So it's
0: pretty big volume pretty quickly. Yep. A lot of homes, especially when you can't borrow on them.
1: Yeah. I mean, you have a lot of leads that went nowhere. It was the nature of that product and the niche market that we were marketing to there. We were lucky that the type of niche product that we had was really specific and that industry, as soon as they see someone like something that is relevant to that niche, they just like pounce on it and inquire. So you have a lot of, you know, time wasters, I suppose. However, like for me, oh, I just don't believe in that. Like I think Every inquiry you should treat with respect and, and, you know, whether they are looking for now. A lot of people would look for two years' time as well. Okay. Um, because they had to plan for the transaction. You know, you couldn't finance it. It wasn't, you know, it's not like they were running out of stock. You know, like, you know, we were competing against other villagers as well. Yeah. So, you know, there was a long decision making process.
0: So, you weren't viewing people who weren't ready to transact to and called today. You were actually looking at those as buyers that are year for two, future, three down yeah. the track.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, anywhere from six months to two two to three years because, yeah. you know, these people were travelling a lot and, and you know, they'd made life decisions to go do those things. You know, they're like, oh, our plan is to go travel here for 12 months and then we're going to come back and we're going to make a decision. So, you know, that's a future opportunity or a future lead or, or you know, someone that we should be talking to in 12 months' time. It's
0: quite a unique belief and attitude towards what most people deem as a time waster.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I have a different view of future sales than what a lot of people do. I'm not, I wasn't directly selling. So what we put in place didn't rely on the salesperson to make that call in six months. You know, the system automated those tasks. They we made it really easy to be reminded to make those phone calls. The ongoing marketing that we put in place, you know, we'd just churn those people out anyway and turn them over time into active instead of just like looking at it passively and thinking about it over time, they would basically self-service themselves yeah. into a purchaser.
0: So you got in, you put the right systems and processes in place, Particularly around CRM, lead lead capture, lead nurture. Yeah, and the reporting.
1: Things. So, like, we narrowed our. I think the the thing that made the most difference was obviously the automation of the CRM, but also our focus and what we spoke about on a regular basis. Right. So. I put sales meeting structures in place so I could forecast sales because essentially that was part of my role inside the business with the board.
0: So hang on. So the board, you had a KPI for how many sales you had to hit that you were responsible for to the board. How, so why was, why was the reporting so critical to that?
1: So reporting was critical because obviously we had a board and we had shareholders. Yeah. We also had to plan for future investment into the development. Yeah. So we had to know when to build the next stage because obviously we needed to have stock available So keep – so you have cash flow issues, et cetera. Not issues, but, you know, that's just part of owning a business. Cash flow, yeah, you yep. got to manage cash flow. You've got to manage stock availability, you know, There's no point in having all these purchases if you don't have stock. And so part of the role was not only managing the sale, but managing the stock levels and then the future stock levels as well. Yeah. When they originally launched the concept, they thought a lot of people would pull money out of super to buy these houses.
0: Which no one ever did.
1: Which I did not have one person pull money out of super to purchase one of these houses. Right. 99% of them had a family home that they'd lived in for their whole life basically. And they were from regional, more like, you know, they were coming from regional locations too. So they weren't coming out of metro, you know, very rarely were they coming out of a metro location, nor were they coming from the neighbouring suburbs either.
0: Right.
1: So- Well,
0: there was no neighbouring suburbs.
1: <laughs> well, there was neighbouring suburbs, but I sold houses twice as expensive as the average South in those neighbouring suburbs. So. I'll we talk just,
0: about that in a second. I want to come back to that later.
1: So one thing that, you know, I like to- not control my sales, but I like to do everything I can for my transactions. De-risk them? Yeah, de-risk it. So, you know, I was ultimately responsible. However, these people would often have to sell their home before they were able to purchase and sign a contract with us.
0: So a subject to sale?
1: Yeah, because like I said, the bank would not finance anything based on the nature of the purchase. So we put in a process which helped us de-risk the subject to sale contract that we would put in place. What was that? where we would, so we'd run a valuation on their property. So Um,
0: you as the developer would get a valuation at your cost, would get a valuation done on the buyer's home. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For what purpose?
1: So one, the client knew their financial position and also we would know, you know, we could work with them in generating a solution um, the issue we were, the reason why we put that in place is, you know, uh, why we offered that. So it was offered, not, yep. you didn't have to do it, but if you wanted to sign a subject to sale contract, that was the process to yeah. relate so to So that do.
0: was a prerequisite of subject to sale. Correct. And the valuation didn't include any emotional attachment value. No,
1: no. So um, the reason why we put that in place was we were relying on local agents right. who were selling the houses for... Um, you know, our clients essentially, and um, none of them can appropriately price a property.
0: Yeah. Well, it comes with its challenges.
1: Yeah. So I couldn't put the fate of my position and the success of my position in the hands of someone that I had, you know, zero impact on and control, mm. which sounds very controlling, but it it just de-risked it, you know, for the business basically. And so what we did was we'd offer them a valuation. Um, if they agreed to list within a certain percentage of that valuation, the next step was we would communicate with that agent. Right. Uh, so we'd essentially sales manage the agent. <laughs> and the reason why we do that is so we knew what the activity was like. You know, so if, say, they had listed the house you know, within the valuation price point and they weren't having inspections, you know, we knew that there would be a problem because what I was able to do then, if they went through that process, I could take that potential transaction or that contract and put it into my sales forecasting. Mm-hmm. So I knew that I would have a unconditional contract within a, you know, three to four month time.
0: Yeah. So when you were cash flow for forecasting for the board based on your reporting, yeah, you were forecasting based on fairly solid deals. It wasn't yep. you know, pie in the sky, wishful thinking. Correct, yeah. So and
1: then I would also pay for a market, like I would pay for professional photography as well. So I knew if it was priced right and it was positioned right, yep. 99% of the time the transaction work. In the three years I only had one that did not work out.
0: So you did the agent's job for them basically. You priced it using a valuer, then you paid to have photography done. So at least it was priced right. So the agent just had a properly priced property that was presented well all I had to do was just close the deal.
1: Basically, yes. Yeah, right.
0: Which meant you got the deal.
1: Which means we got the deal, yeah. Okay. So part of the sales manage, you know, part of our sales package, you know, our sales meetings and whatnot, we would actually talk about the activity that that person was having on the sale of their personal property. So I could make some decisions around, you know, do I take that out of the forecast or do I keep it in there? Like, what's that agent got to say? Are they have they got people coming through? Have they had any offers? You know, etc. So,
0: so you weren't just managing so you weren't just managing your own deals you were managing the deals of the buyers who were buying through you
1: well essentially that was managing my deal but yes
0: yeah so you were managing two lots of transactions effectively
1: yeah cuz one would lead to the other so right. and we couldn't ignore the subject to sale buyers because that was you know 80% 90% of the buyers that we were dealing with so like it was such a big chunk of people to not pay attention to and put and put a you know put something solid in place so i could Correctly forecast, and so we're not living in this pie in the sky land. Because at the end of the day, the salespeople, and God bless them, they will always be like, "Yeah, no, they should." You know, they've said that they'll they'll sell it, and you know, like they're going to list it properly, It'll and be whatnot. Fine. It'll be fine, but then at the end of the day, I was the one that had to report to the board,
0: right? Um, and, in the end, and so like you talk about that, like there's a lot of gravity weighing on the responsibility of those hitting those targets. Yeah. And you mentioned cash flow forecasting before. Yep. Like, you know, normally that's something CFOs doing. Yep. So, what input did you have on cash flow forecasting?
1: Well, one, I hated hearing that, like, you know, I couldn't build a stage or something along those lines or because you, you
0: wanted to go quicker.
1: Well, you know, I had sales targets to hit. So, like, if stock wasn't available, then I couldn't hit my sales target. Right. So, the other thing we put in place, so, like, not only did we put in place processes to generate the sale, and when you generate that sale it's only half the transaction because it's just the contract to actually pour a slab and build a house right then you've got to finish the contract and finish building the property as well mm. so you get that final settled transaction so there's two parts to that transaction and so the other side of it was pulling back how long it would take to build a house what and the pulling
0: pro- back reducing the reducing
1: entire. the time yep so you know we worked really hard on that as well and so you know if i could Change my build time from 18 weeks to 16 weeks to 14 weeks. You know that's quite a substantial amount of time, which impacts your cash flow and your forecasting and your ability to build sooner rather than later, etc.
0: So, as as your role in marketing management, you're actually figuring out ways to reduce the build time so that you could then sell houses quicker and have more stock to sell, so you could hit your KPIs better.
1: Yeah, because as far as I was concerned, it was part of the sales process and. What was happening were, you know, my sales team were responsible for the tra- the whole transaction, you know, from yep, yeah, signing contract to finishing the finishing the build. So you know, you get constantly into. I'd watch them. I'd watch these people come in and ask questions about a tile to my salesperson, who real who's telling me that they're too busy to call back these leads. So we split that process out. So we had a kind of a customer service person. So once the transaction happened, the customer service person would act as the liaison between the builder and the and us and right. them so you've got that kind of extra support because there was a lot of work that had to be done after the contract sign you know it's never it's not just a, it's not like yes here in 3 months it's you know they've got to make selections and then selections run out of stock so you've got to kind of give them other options etc you know there's always things that are out of everyone's control that needs to be discussed you've got to sign off on stages you know to the point where we were because we still had to do it was still a build contract technically so we would then run inspections to make sure the builder was appropriately hitting their stages so we could invoice on the day of that stage being hit to manage the cash flow that made sense yep,
0: to try and bring it forward
1: to bring it forward yep.
0: yep and like pretty wild to think is it someone who originally got involved just to sort a CRM system out then ends up cash flow forecasting to to speed up.
1: Well, helping with cash flow forecasting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't want to touch the spreadsheet, but I had someone else do it and I would look at it to go, yeah, I need money here. I need a a house here. So if I wasn't hitting sales targets for whatever reason, you know, because something's fallen through, do we build a spec? How do we fill that hole? You know, et cetera. So it was very important to be able to hit and exceed those targets.
0: Because you were living and dying by those KPIs. Yeah.
1: So that was That was my focus at all times. So we worked with agencies to deliver everything else, which was great. Agencies and contractors. So I was the only handle upwards of, you know, close to a million dollars in marketing. And so we had agencies that we partnered with, which were great, which, you know, so I trusted them and we were across everything. But then that gave me the time as a marketing person who was responsible for sales transactions to really understand the business and make those little 1% changes that actually impacted, it had big impact over time.
0: Yeah. And so, it's I mean, it's a it's a crazy story as it is, but I think it's important to reflect on how that brand came about as well because it was a, you know, it, it, you mentioned before like a really unique point of difference. We won't go into the specifics exactly what that was, but it took a bloke who was really passionate about an element of lifestyle, yep. travel, yep. who then came up with this concept to build this over-50s village specifically around that, who was just a, like, obviously you and I know him very well and he's just the nicest guy on the planet.
1: He's a visionary. So I think the reason why I'm so, I was, it's outside of what I do now, it's the most fun I've ever had, which sounds weird when you're talking about over-50s village, but it was actually the most fun because we, like, we're a high-performing team. Like, we were cranking. Yeah. And... But, you know, to have someone who believes in the product and and like the highest of quality possible within, you know, within budgets and stuff like that, you know, to have that as well makes you realise that like, you know, you, you're not afraid to ask a question or you're not afraid to pitch an idea or you're not afraid to think out of the box because that's kind of what's encouraged you know, so even to the point of, I got there one day and I got sick of looking at the bromeliads in one of the pots. So, you know, we changed all of it to be flowers and it sounds so simple, but it was such a ethos of the founder and a major shareholder that that was such a big part of the ethos of the brand. Was the gardens. Was the gardens. And so, you know, if I walked past a garden that I didn't think was, you know, reflective of that, I was able to have a chat to the gardeners and go, hey guys, can we do something here? Because it doesn't quite match, which is pretty cool. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah.
0: And you're right. I mean, a visionary is a really appropriate word for that CEO and and founder of that brand. How do you then manage that though? Like bigger than life personality, the most passionate person on the planet. With numbers. You manage them with numbers. Yeah. And so what happens when they've got a wild idea?
1: You bring it back to the sales. Right. (laughs) It all comes back to numbers. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, that's what we're there for. And we, we had budgets and we had to stick to those budgets. And often money was taken out of my budget to be spent on something that was a wild idea. And, you know, that was just part of it. And I had to find that money somewhere. So, you know, to be able to work with someone like that who thinks differently, that it allows you to think a little bit differently and, and put your ideas forward for the better of the business and the brand and the customers and the staff and, you know, all of that type of stuff.
0: But because you had that unconditional and just like unequivocal focus on hitting the numbers and it wasn't just we hit our numbers, our job's done, it was a, that's a minimum requirement of my position. That's yep. the way you viewed it. So that was a minimum, not, you know.
1: And I think the, the, the other thing. thing is is I think what was really important, which I, on reflection, I really appreciate and I didn't quite notice it at the time because I have worked in businesses where it's like, we want to hit $10 million this year. And as a marketing person, you're like, how the hell am I meant to get us to 10 million? You know, like there's no tangible step, whereas I had an, an amount of transactions I had to do. So it wasn't about the dollar figure, even though, you know, we had minimum.
0: Well, each dollar figure represented, call it half a million bucks, right?
1: Yeah, but, but you know, like we had minimum standards. So it wasn't about cutting, like cutting deals to get the transaction, but I had to hit a certain amount of transactions a month yep. within a certain amount of within a budget. But, you know, it was all about the sales number. It wasn't about the value of the sale. So- and so for th- the
0: marketing manager, you had a tangible goal of this number of sales.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which then allowed you to focus and where's that next deal coming from? What Who are we talking to? What can we do? What, what do we need to do to help this person move forward?
0: And I guess the interesting thing about that is because you had such- a track record of deliveries. Well, it wasn't like you hit your numbers one month, you didn't the next and you made some excuses. You hit them month in, month out I had month.
1: to. I, I There wasn't an option to not hit it. And if I didn't hit it, I had to make it up the following months. So-
0: When you say had to- Yeah. Are we talking legally, financially, morally?
1: Uh, well, I was a contractor. Yeah. So, you know, as You're far as, as I can as say- as good as your last month. Yeah. So, you know, I would live three months in advance in my sales forecasting. Yeah. And I was pretty spot on.
0: And so when you then had to have a hard conversation with the CEO, do you feel that because you'd earned the right to speak up, both in front of the CEO and the board for that matter, you were able to speak with confidence because you had the track route of hitting those numbers and they listened?
1: And I knew the numbers. Yeah. The biggest thing is knowing the numbers. So you've got to be able to hit the numbers and know the numbers and the reasons why we're not hitting numbers, et cetera. So, you know, even at AGMs, I was the person that presented the performance of the sales and marketing to the entire, like to all of the shareholders. Yeah. So, you know, and-, and the, the stakes are pretty
0: high. Like, yeah, people with life savings in that thing,
1: right? Correct, yeah. So the first time they did it to me, they told me in the plane I was giving this- Oh, they dumped it on you. <laughs> yeah. They dumped it on me, which is fine. Cause I knew my numbers, you know, like I knew what I was going to hit for the year. I knew what I was going, like what my inquiry rates were. I knew because of what we did that month, the same month, the year prior, I knew if we were on track or off track. So, you know, for me, the numbers just rolled off my tongue.
0: So despite reporting to a board, which is obviously a very, you know, C-suite type position, you were extremely hands-on though. You were walking around site saying those plants aren't the right.
1: Well, not like Species. that. But yes. Well Rip not them the- out
0: <laughs> and burn them and replace them Well, it would with, be
1: more of a discussion with the team. Right. Though, you know, Is that a bit uh, like how
0: you and I have a debate?
1: No. So it's a bit more forward. Right. Our debates.
0: So as a high level marketing manager, you're reporting to a board, you're hitting your KPIs as a minimum requirement month in, month out. You're dealing with millions of dollars in media spend. You're driving three or four hours there, three or four hours back a couple times a week- Taking the company plane at other times. How many hours a week were you doing?
1: A lot. I lived and breathed it.
0: Eighty, seven, yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. It's a blur. I'd spend
1: most of my days talking to my sales manager and my sales team. Yeah. Or I'd be in meetings, or I'd have to run something past like my general manager. Or we were trying to close out a deal, so you know, I you know, I was lucky. I had the ability to sign off on deals as well. If we were negotiating on something,
0: you also had a really supportive GM.
1: Yeah, 100%. Who 100%.
0: Both of you were totally on the same page. Yeah. Yeah, we had a,
1: we had a goal we were working towards and 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 that never really shook. So to the point where he couldn't not hit his Next stage because it would impact my sales too much. So like he, just as much as I had, I was responsible for the sales. He was responsible for giving me the stock. Yeah. And so, you know, every week I would forecast when I need new stock.
0: So you had to rely on each other.
1: We had to rely on each other, you know, and I I still to this day, like every week I would print off a map of (laughs) my village And I would mark off what's sold, what's sitting at unconditional, what's conditional, and then I would count up each stage. Like I couldn't work out a better way to do some numbers that I had to put in my head because sometimes you just need a visual representation and it was far cheaper than, you know, hiring a big development company to build me an interactive map. But that would be a way that I could actually visualise it and show, you know, because some people are visual more than anything or, you know, so I could forecast.
0: Was it glamorous? No. Like you're talking about planes.
1: It was so hot. Oh my God. I've just never been so hot in all of my life all the time. No, it wasn't glamorous. But you're saying it was so fun.
0: Yeah. So you're saying you had the most fun you ever had?
1: Yeah. I'd eat McDonald's every time we were up there because what else would you eat? It's just like the safest thing North to Queensland. <laughs> It's the safest thing to eat. And it was just so hot all the time. So, you know, that was one of my biggest things. <laughs> I was driving around in golf carts and, you know, You know, you're in high viz and you're wearing helmets and you're wearing closed-in shoes in 35-degree heat.
0: Is this where your love of soft serve comes from?
1: Yeah, probably. (laughs) You'd get in the car so exhausted because it's so so humid so you were just completely zapped of any energy. And then you'd be on the phone or you'd be talking to each other about work for the two hours on the way back as well because you hadn't been able to talk to your general manager and run, you know, what your instructions were that day past them. But yeah, no, it was it was lots of fun.
0: So it wasn't glamorous. You're working eighty hours a week.
1: Yeah, having
0: the most funny life. Yeah, would you do it again? Yeah, I think I would. So for those listeners who might be marketing managers or aspiring marketing managers, coordinators, or whatnot, or they could be business owners, even wondering, you know, what am I? How can I find them? How come my marketing manager can't do that? Because I think we've got to be fair here. You were remunerated extremely well for that. You had very very big KPIs.
1: I was remunerated because I was able to to ask for that remuneration based on the focus that I put in place. No one asked me to do that stuff. It was 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 just over time.
0: So, you know, all the things like, I mean, like I said, you you went in there to set up a CRM, but you ended up cash flow forecasting for Capital Works. Yeah. Um, And because you knew the numbers and because you could report and because you hit KPIs, you you earned the right to ask for what you wanted to be paid.
1: Yeah. But you
0: had the runs on the board to do it.
1: Yeah, correct. But, you know, like if my... CEO. Yeah, called me on a Sunday. You answered. I answer. Yeah, you know, if someone calls me at six a.m., you answer.
0: So, is there such thing as a high-level lifestyle marketing manager? No, I guess the reason why I asked that is because I think a lot of people sort of might hear the glamorous side to you know marketing conferences and you know being on a plane every different day of the week and you know drinking wine at lunch and all that sort of stuff. But the reality is that if you want to earn the big bucks, yeah then you work your absolute guts out for it.
1: I think there's plenty of opportunity to earn as a marketing person, you know, whether that's a digital marketing manager or a social media person, like as long as you're adding value back to the business. And I think somehow it got lost where, you know, marketing is responsible for sales.
0: But you took that responsibility on. Yeah
1: but, yeah, but we had to link it together because it obviously links, you know, one equates to the other, yep. right? And uh, there's often a lot of time, uh, you know, often we see marketing and sales are against each other when we should, as marketing people, we should be talking to our salespeople to know what questions are we being asked? What objections are we receiving? What resources do you need? You know, all of those things to make sure that they're prepared and and able to do the best that they can and there's no excuses.
0: So in other words... When they're viewed as two separate departments, they get to blame one another, but when they're viewed as two departments working together, they have to be ultimately accountable to one another.
1: Yeah. And I also think business owners don't realize that marketing should actually be related to the sales. So, you know, I find it really odd as, a dig- as an agency owner now, you know, we deal with marketing people and they're obsessed with what a word is in the social media content, which I get it from a brand perspective, but you know what? It's not going to move the needle for sales. that one word.
0: So they're focusing on the wrong thing.
1: Well, they've not been taught to focus on anything else. You know, the expectation's not there. When as marketing should be reflecting sales, it should be reflecting leads into the business. It's not, you know, there's a place for tone of voice and, you know, all that type of stuff. But at the end of the day, we're here to make money, you know, and generate transactions, whatever that is. So I find it, really complexing that the things that people focus on in marketing when there are bigger problems or bigger opportunities out there to be chasing and you can rely on your agencies to be helping you with things but you know sometimes it feels like an us first them whereas you know in my experience when you have the agency and you're working with them and and you're being innovative as a marketing person because what you're thinking is around you know what you're being told about sales rather than it being a word you don't like, which no one's really going to notice, you know, that it's just a different focus and it's a different way of thinking.
0: So do you think that's one of the differentiators between someone who's almost stuck in this micromanagement of marketing, which is creating limitations on their own? Well, I think you've got
1: those people because they like that, you know, like they're, you know, they're not.
0: But compared to a high-level marketing manager who's literally doing everything from having a hand in cash flow forecasting to reporting to a board, to managing a million bucks in advertising. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're much, much bigger picture things when you're like, when you've got a, a GM saying, I need to find six million bucks for the next round of capital works to occur. Yeah. You weren't bogged down with the spelling of a particular word because of the well, I had an
1: I had an agency who I knew would do the right thing and would be doing as well as they could in the circumstances that they were in. You so know? to so. elevate
0: yourself, you brought in the right suppliers to help you do that.
1: Yeah, I couldn't do it. You know, like I couldn't do all of those things. Yeah. and so I was too busy.
0: Well, that's an interesting point, right? So, you know, as a business owner, I'm sitting here going, well, I want my marketing manager to be just as engaged as April was when she was running that project. But to do that, you've also got to keep in mind the amount of money that was spent on it and the, the resources that were then allocated to you to deliver what you were tasked to do was was obviously high as well. It wasn't given to- We had a
1: cost per transaction for marketing. Right,
0: that's what it came back to, the cost yeah, per so transaction. Yeah, so that's
1: how our budgets were worked out. And yeah. So ends- it
0: wasn't, the owner didn't sort of pluck a figure and go, you got 50k to, a month to spend it. Uh, was- I'm sure
1: it was in the beginning, yeah. but then over time we were actually able to go, okay, so, you know, this is the cost that I need to generate a transaction. And it wasn't just, you know, you know, that cost isn't just like one Facebook lead, it's, you know, all of the events that you have and the printing that you have and the, you know, the ambassadorship that you have and the gardening that you do and the, you know, the parking that you create and, the, you know, all of those things. So it, we had worked out a cost per transaction which then allowed me, so the more transactions I was doing, the more marketing budget I had to spend.
0: Oh, okay, yeah, I gotcha. So it was almost like reverse engineered in a way where Mm -hmm. like there was an agreement on how much you could spend per sale and then if you got more sales, you had more money to spend. Okay. Yeah. So I guess to try and summarise this a little bit and give the listeners a few takeaways, if you are the marketing manager or the employee or the consultant, what's your number one or two bits of advice If you're in that position and you want to be like at that high level.
1: I think you have to, so you have to want to understand the business. So it's not just about the area that you operate in. So that general curiosity in how things work, how they link together, how it impacts each other. So there's that curiosity of why, how, when, whatnot. And then the conversations that you're having with your manager or the business owner or something along those lines, you know, like I would love someone to come to me and go, I've got this lead generation idea. What do you think? You know, like.
0: So in other words, show some. Initiative. Thoughtful initiative.
1: Yeah. So so there's understanding the business. Yeah. And the problems that the business faces and the problems that each role faces as well, because each role face different problems. You know, the salespeople will be sick of leads that are not qualified enough. Yeah. You know, because all that, and the reason why they're sick of it is they're only paid on the sale. So they don't care about the you know, people that are going to buy in two years time. I don't give a shit about it. They care about what's in front of them for the next 30 days. That's it. So as a marketing person, you go, okay, well, how do I generate that person back? Or how do I look after that person? So they turn into a transaction in two years time, you know? So you have to understand each role in the business, what happens, how the business functions, to then be able to provide recommendations and pitch ideas on how to move forward. It's not just about going, oh, we could just do TV. It's actually understanding what, what are the 1% things that you can do to propel the business forward, which will help with your marketing budgets and improve your marketing budgets and improve the outcomes of the marketing that you're doing. And then also understanding, you know, within reason, whether it's the financial position of the business or what's the sales targets for the business. So you know, instead of going 10 million, it might go, we need 100 sales this year. Well, what are we at currently? You know, like what's the business at currently? You know, how many is that a month? So how many is that a week?
0: Genuinely understanding the commercial realities of the business.
1: Yeah, and breaking it down into months and and weeks, and taking into consideration things like, you know, April is a weird month; people oh, are away. I'm December. A December, January, a weird month. So you know, I had different sales targets for December, January. Okay, yeah. Because I had an technically, I had an annual target I had to hit. So then we split it up into months, and then I looked at it and go, "What months are the quiet months? Because you can't fight that either. So you have got to make them up in other months."
0: Yeah. And then, as a business owner, what some advice you would give them who are either they're probably either stuck in one or two places they they're wishing that they could find someone to do that in which case we just talk through all the things that that person could do, but also you could just have that person listen to this podcast. I could ask them. When you say that, you could ask them. you suggest in the business owner should just go and ask the marketing manager what do you need to do to hit your targets? Yep. Or is there even targets in the first place?
1: What do you What do you think we should be doing right now? What problems are you experiencing that we should be addressing? Yeah. You know, So having
0: a more open and frank dialogue. Business conversation. Business conversations. Yeah. Right. And so a lot of what you just went through, and a lot of what you talked about, a part of that was about spending money on advertising
1: mm-hmm.
0: and, and content creation things like that. But 80% of it was about solving business problems. The well,
1: marketing solves business. That's the idea well, of marketing. is a part yeah. of business, right? Yeah, and it's there to solve business problems. So, you know, the problem of people not realising that we'd actually built houses, you know, that was that is a business problem, but we fixed it with marketing. You're
0: telling the story of... Telling the, the story.
1: I had to tell real stories about real people. That was how I told the story of you know, this particular product. It wasn't about the marketing photos anymore. It wasn't about the editorial shots because it, w- it wasn't compelling enough.
0: Yeah. So April. Yep. That was a mouthful. <laughs> it was. Uh, we're going to have to debrief after this. I know. Is there anything else that you want to talk about a bit missed or do you think it'd be helpful?
1: No, I don't think so. I think it's over time the role that I had changed because I, I think I even my ability changed with the role as well. My understanding changed with the role. So I think if you own a business, bringing those people in that are showing the initiative, you know, stretching them, not too much, but stretching them to see what they're capable of doing what they can understand. Lean on your suppliers because, you know, that can be a massive uh, cost saving but also very efficient at the same time. You know, like when I leaned on our agencies, you know, I didn't have to worry about someone being sick. Still happened.
0: Mm, Good point.
1: You know, like I didn't have to worry about holiday leave, all my content still went, you know, anything like that. So, yeah, if I wanted, like, I wanted reliability um, because I was too busy doing the other stuff. So that's how I gauged what I should spend money on as well. And I think if you're a marketing manager, just showing interest in other areas of the business or trying to understand the reasons why things happen and why decisions are made and, you know, getting close to those people so you can potentially contribute in a, your way add more value 100 percent.
0: april this has been amazing thank you so much for your time no problem. i hope you invite me back on next week
1: <laughs> thank you for having me
0: i hope everyone enjoyed see ya Bye.